Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzer. We've got a great new show here kicking off 2023 with two events going on. One uh, fellow that uh, will be first up, Kevin Bow, has a new record out, and we're going to play a track off of that, and then we're going to uh, interview a fellow named Rob Hillstrom about the tonight's uh Music from Big Pink show, The Last Waltz Tribute. But first up, an old friend of mine uh, who I've known for, we won't even say for how long, Mr. Kevin Bow. He's a longtime uh, Minneapolis musician. He's also uh, an amazing producer. He's got a very cool recording studio where she spent a lot of time in. He was also the man that discovered kid Johnny Lang and wrote a, a few of his first hits and he's got a new record out by his band the Okima Prophets and he's going to tell you all about it. Kevin, how are you tonight? I'm great. I am actually great. I'm watching the snow here in South Minneapolis in Tangletown. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what, uh, tell us about, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your history for for those few people out there in the Wall of Power Radio Our Land that haven't heard of the great Kevin Ball, you, you got, I believe, the, the first time you and I kind of started uh, hanging together, and uh, I think we might have even done a few shows w- with your band Summer of Love. Now, was there something before that? No, that's when I like started seeing you play out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just go see you play. Um, so that's what, like mid-80s? Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, and then, uh, yeah, that band was, uh, well, well, Paul, it was a band. Yeah. <laughs> look at you. It's like a friend of mine says, look at you. You have a band. Well, the, and you know, <laughs> let's think back at that early 80s, mid 80s. Minneapolis was really on fire, not only in terms of bands like Soul Asylum and the replacements and Who's Could Do that were getting nationally recognized, but as you well know, there was music seven nights a week in uh uh, in the bars, in the nightclubs in Minneapolis. Great time to and get a band started. It was amazing. And I was, you know, I was young and dumb, and I didn't realize, I thought, oh, this is just what life is like everywhere. Right. I didn't realize that I was in a magical place at a, in a magical time because of, yeah, the whole replacements, Husker Du, Jayhawk, Soul Asylum thing on one side and the whole Prince thing on the other side. I was joked that in 84 or 85, when the Purple Rain movie came out, people were, you remember this, moving to Minneapolis. Right. From all over the world, because they they mistook that film for a documentary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they, they got here and realized that it's just a bunch of dogs pooping out in the snow. You know, you know it's... And it was different than the movie. <laughs> you know, it's funny, back when I had, uh, my band Cats and the Stars broke up in uh, 1984, and uh, my first record, Paper Tigers, was coming out, and I used most of the cats on that record, and then uh, hired three of them to to be in the new Paul Metza group. So it was kind of a seamless segue. And uh, there was a guy named Charlie Alcox who moved to town, three hundred and fifty pound blind keyboard player, but like a lot of the, uh, I, I uh, had hired uh, oh two or three 
uh, African-Americans to play in the band. And it's funny, mo- a lot of the African-Americans, black guys that you met, met back then, whether or not they, they were, they would all say, oh, yeah, I'm cousins with Prince. <laughs> That's a big family, isn't it? It was That's a big, big family. family. <laughs> and then, of course, he produced a band called The Family. So now, yeah, what, right. now who are you going out to uh, see? Because I think back then... Uh, your new record is called uh, the track went place California sober. We'll talk about that. But you you've been sober for years, but back then you were probably still drinking a little bit. Not that there's anything no, wrong with that. No, no. I got I was a, a early. I got sober. Here's the. You're gonna laugh. You're gonna, okay, I'm just gonna prepare. You're gonna laugh at me. <laughs> I got sober while I was still at the end of high school, senior year in high school. Wow. And you know, typical thing. You hear your your, your name called on the intercom. Uh, you know, we'll cover and ball to the office, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, dude. You know, I was completely wasted. I was a 70s, you know, Led Zeppelin pothead, you know. Right. Typical, uh, like, t- my, my high school, my high school was, was like, um, Dazed and Confused, the movie. Mm-hmm. Right? It was like that. So, um, I went to the office and there was a huge, like, all everyone I ever met in my life was doing a big intervention. I was like, holy crap. So it was that that whole story. And so my my sobriety date was um, four twenty. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell I tell kids now, in the seventies, we didn't need a national weed day. We just called it day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was it was a it was a day that ended in Y, right? Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Quite literally. You know, it's so my whole uh, all my I've never actually had a drink in a bar. Wow. Because I got sober so young. I've never, and I played, ironically, I've played, well, I quit playing live like seven years ago, but, you know, I've spent my whole life playing in bars for all these people who appear to be having a really great time. <laughs> <laughs> well, good for you. You were kind of uh, at the head of the class, so to speak, in terms of musicians getting sober. Now, as the years gone on, uh, you know, musicians that have always been slagged for being the druggies and the alkies, really, the majority of the people we know in the music business are primarily sober now. I guess. I mean, I never even think about it anymore. I, I got caught because I was the, like, I was a slow runner. You know what I mean? And so it's like the cops come and I'd be always, you know, in the back. It's like, oh, well, we'll just get him. You know, that's, that's what ended my my career, but it's been so long now. It's been like 43 years. I don't think about it, but the, the, the California sober thing came about because I was, um, I was working with this kid and he told his publisher who told my publisher, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about working with Kevin cause he's sober, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And he was doing some cool stuff in, in Nashville. And so I went over to his house and he's like, yeah, I'm really excited to work with you. I'm sober too. And I'm like, um, Oh, okay, cool. You know, like, again, it's not something I really think about anymore, but right. And he was, proceeds to tell me about it while he pulls out this bong the size of your jersey. And he's just hitting on this thing. And I was like, well, what's this? And that's when someone um, explains to me, oh, yeah, it's California sober. Like if you're on really bad way, you're on opiates or whatever, and you're, you know, and you get off that, but you still smoke weed or still drink or whatever, right. that's California sober. And I just thought, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. That's the best phrase I've ever heard in my life. And so that's where the song That's fantastic. And we're going to be listening to it at the end of this interview with the great Kevin Bow. You know, there's a funny uh, story. John Bream did a, a book uh, called Dylan Record by Record, something like that. And it was, he would have two people discuss different Dylan records. And, uh, 
I, I was and I was a big fan of Bob Dylan's Under the Red Sky, which is not a very popular record among uh, Dylan fans, but I love it, absolutely adore it. And um, so there was one of the uh, conversations that he had in the book was with Rick Ocasek of the Cars and Ike Riley from Chicago. I, I don't know if you know about Ike. Yeah, He's yeah. A kind of working man. Yeah, punk yeah. rocker, great, yeah. great songwriter. And he was talking about how he and his buddies were down in Chicago with the... Uh, the cars that just came out with whatever that record was, and they were listening to it on cassette, of course, in their car, smoking weed, and they get pulled over by the cops, and the cops come over, and they open the window, and plumes of smoke like a part of a Cheech and Chong movie, and the uh, <laughs> the officer goes, uh, do you guys have any cannabis? And, and Ike goes, no, officer, just, just a little weed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. The good old days. So tell us now... Let's let's talk a little bit about Johnny Lang because you are kind of the guy that brought Johnny to prominence. How did that all come about? Well, it was kind of like Columbus discovering America. There were quite a few native people here who already knew that it was here. Mm -hmm. But um, I had a gig, a random gig with a band I was in. Horrible gig. It's like, you'll relate to this, Paul. It was 20 Below, not including the windshield, February playing at a club called Playmakers in Fargo. Nobody cared about my band. My band is already on the the part of the band career where we all hate each other. Right. You know, like the honey, honeymoon's over. Well, you know, and, and, and what a place to break up at Fargo. My God. Oh, my. I mean, just everything, the worst of, of everything. And we were at this Playmakers club where it's like they have big TVs with sports on them and fried food and beer and nobody's paying attention to the band. And we got there and there was a band sound checking that was going to play with us and it was this kid, Johnny Lang. And he had only been playing guitar for nine months, but he he pretty much had all the skills that he ever like had in his career. Right, he was just unnatural. And um, he was sound checking, and I had this. I, I felt like I was on LSD or something because I was like, I hadn't felt that feeling since I saw the Replacements' first gig ever. Wow! And I knew that I was in the presence of greatness. Well, that was actually confusing because I was like, this is the worst band I've ever seen in my life. Why do I love them? Right. I am confused. But with Johnny, it was very obvious that I was in the right place at the right time and witnessing something. I mean, you didn't have to be an A&R guy to, you know. And there was a bunch of their people there in Vargo that already knew that he was amazing. And what was he, so, about 16 at the time or something? 14. Wow. 13. 13. Wow. He was 13, I know. He looked, when he got up on stage, he looked like a deer standing up for the first time, like where their arms and kids get that age where they're like, yeah. their arms and their legs are too long for their body. He right, like a right. Colt, a colt or a little deer. And he had this Princess Leia haircut. He just looked ridiculous <laughs> when he started playing and singing. And I was like, and I'd already, like, I'd already gotten my first cut as a writer. Then I had written a song for Kenny Wayne Shepherd, And so we started talking and he thought I was a really big deal because I had written for Kenny Wayne Shepherd. I remember thinking this, you, you are going to eclipse Kenny Wayne Shepherd, you are yeah. way beyond that. And so we just got to be pals, and I invited him to come to Minneapolis and, you know, uh, write songs together. And so we did. And then I hooked him up with uh, David Zee, my producer friend, that I'm sure you know. Uh, oh, yeah. He, he had gotten me that Kenny Wayne Shepherd cut. And so that was my another one of my most stupid career moves. It's like, oh, let me introduce you to my super town, more talented and powerful friend so he can produce <laughs> so, the record. So he can make all the money. <laughs> yeah, right. But I wasn't a producer by any means back then, so it was the right thing to do. I was just a writer. So we wrote a bunch of songs together, 
and we did those two records on A&M, uh, which is kind of cool because the way A&M did it, they just sent the money. Mm-hmm. They said, call us when the record's done. There wow. was no interference. There was not even any interest. They just knew, they, you know, they thought, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get it right. And we did. There were two double platinum records. The second record we did in Minneapolis, and uh, Richie Hayward from Little Feet was on drums, and wow. Cropper was on guitar. Wow. And I got to come in and play guitar on a couple of songs that I had written. And it was just, it was a, overall a really, really fun and easy experience. I remember uh, when he started to play, do some gigs at Bunkers, because James Klein, uh, who is who officed above Bunkers, and his you know, lovely uh, significant other Jackie uh, owned Bunkers with, with her brother, uh, James, as well. And... Uh, I went and saw him, and he was, you know, really a handsome kid on top of it, about being a great player and singer. And, and he goes, what do you think? And I said, get him acting lessons immediately, because <laughs> after he does a couple records, man, this gets movie star looks as well. He could have. You're yeah. right. He could have. He was in that Blues Brothers, that awful Blues Brothers, like, redo movie. Yeah. And he had, a like, a very tiny uh, part in that. But then I, I remember him saying to me at the time, uh, I hate acting. I don't want to do it. And I was like, "What well, should you know?" And he's like, "No, I, I hate it." He was just focused on uh, on music, I guess. But well, uh, making those records was so easy. It was just so easy. Well, let's talk about some other uh, musicians that have have uh, recorded your Kevin Bowes songs. Um, let's see, live or dead? Let's start with the dead ones, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Let's start with the dead ones, Paul. Uh, Etta James uh, did four of my songs on a rec- on an album she won a Grammy with. Uh, the album's called Let's Roll. Um, Joe Cocker, his last record, he he cut a song of mine. Wow. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, three Dog Night. Man. About a three of them are gone now. But um, yeah, Three Dog Night. Um, uh, John Mayall. He's still alive, right? Wow. Yeah, he is. He's still alive is amazing because he's got to be getting up there i think he's like um, 86 or 87 wow leonard skinnard uh most of them are dead and <laughs> that the, the, the version of skinnard that i wrote with to get to get that cut a, a couple of those have died since then i don't know how they get anyone to be in that band paul because it's a death sentence yeah right it's i don't like, know how they, like if they ask you to join skinner don't do it Say it's like, no it's like the grateful dev had three keyboard players and they're all dead yeah. yeah, like you know, don't ask, don't don't take the gig. Well, how um, about the, how about the living ones now? Um, well, I'm, I'll tell you what. I'm, I think my memory isn't what it used to be, which is I'm grateful for that every day. Right, exactly. Um, lately, I've been working with um, this great singer in England, uh, Northern England, middle of nowhere, named Courtney Hadwin. Okay, she a big scene about four years ago when she was 14. She sang "Hard to Handle." the Otis Redding song sure. that the Black Crows had the big hit with on uh, Britain's Got Talent. And she just, I mean, watch the video online. Just Google Courtney Hadwin uh, uh, and it'll come up. And how do you spell, Had- how do you spell Hadwin? H-A-D-W-I-N. Okay. And so since then, for four years, she's been kind of messed around by the music business, had different managers and labels, stuff like that. And no one knew what to do with her because she's a rocker. She's she's a rocker. Mm-hmm. I mean, she sings, I mean, Janice vibes and things like that. And so they just 
the mainstream music business now, all they really know how to do is pop. Because anything yeah. that's soulful or weird or off the beaten track, as you know, is done indie. So she got out of her last deal, and now she hasn't been able to put out any music for four years. And she's got hundreds of thousands of fans on social media and stuff like that. And they've been patiently waiting or impatiently waiting. And we just have her first song coming out in uh, probably about a month. Uh, it's called Breakable, and I just finished mixing that this morning, and that's something we wrote together. Wow. So um, we're going to be putting out a few things. Um, and then there's a band in Pittsburgh called The Ghost Towns that spent a bunch of the last year on the road opening for the Rolling Stones here and in Europe. And I uh, have uh, co-written and co-produced the four albums for them in the last three and a half years. Do they hook you up with backstage passes when the Stones come to Minneapolis? You know, I never do the backstage thing because it just, I don't know. It's just, it just, I mean, it was nice. I went and saw them open for the Stones in Washington, D.C. and in L.A., that, that new stadium in L.A., that SoFi Stadium. That was pretty impressive. And so uh, I got it up into one of those boxes, you know. Yeah. And that's good enough for me because the food is usually excellent. But going backstage, I just, I don't know. There's something about it I don't like. You know what I mean? Like at some point, some if you're backstage, someone is going to come up to you and say, "You're not supposed to be here." Right? You know what I mean? It's like, hey, if I want a piece like that, I can get that at home. I don't. Need to go <laughs> so, Kevin, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the Okima Prophets now. When did that? When did you guys put out your first record? Oh man, it's been a long time because there's been a lot of incarnations of that band. You know, well, so I don't you, even remember. You know, um, I was always curious. Uh, and I need to ask you how you came up with that name because, of course, the, the original Okima prophet is uh, Woody Guthrie, who was born and raised in Okima, Oklahoma. So how did That's you it. come up? In his okay. book, in Bound for Glory, the Okima prophet he talks about in his book is the town lunatic. And this guy, <laughs> when he was growing up, used to stand in the town square and kind of proselytize and preach to no one, just nonsense. And so they kind of, I guess affectionately but kiddingly called him the Okima prophet. And I thought about, like, I thought about when I read that, you and me, Paul, were writing these songs. You know, we put our hearts into these things. These songs are really important to us, and they're dealing with issues that are important to us, people and feelings and stuff like that. And we get out there in these bars, and we're singing our hearts out, and those people are drinking and ignoring us often. And I thought, we're, that's what we are. Right. We're the Okima prophets. We're sitting there babbling because I'm sure that that guy thought what he was saying was profound and important. You know what I mean? As as we do. That's and a that's a great story. I never I never knew that. I'm so I always <laughs> wanted to ask you that. Now I know. So tell yeah. us a little bit about uh, the new record because it's been a while. Well, right? yeah, it's been a while. I did the, the, my last record with the band was seven years ago. Uh, it was called Every Part of the Buffalo. Um, and that was focused on being, at that point, we were a three-piece, very scrappy rock band. And then I decided to stop playing live. Another great career decision. We stopped. I stopped live performance and then put out that record. <laughs> so that was good. That's, that, was, um, that, was, that was good. Um, and then I was never going to make another record because I really do like my job writing and producing for other people. I mean, that's my favorite thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, I've always had a love-hate relationship with being an artist myself. Um, and, but then COVID came, and that was weird, and I was sitting at home with more time on my hands than I'm used to because I'm usually really, really busy, and I wasn't. But I had my own studio, and I had some friends with studios, uh, 
Noel Levy had just built a, the great drummer, had just built a studio above his garage so he could do drum tracks over there. And we've known each other long enough where I know he'll, he'll do what I want him to do. Mm-hmm. And so I started making a record. And since I was never going to make another record, I, li- I called this record Half Past Never. So it, there's no reason for this record. I mean, it, it's not, I have no aspirations for it. The best of luck would be to get it used in, you know, a, one of the songs used in a movie or something. Right. But I mean, I'm not going to tour it. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time promoting it or whatever. It's just, it's a, it's just a, a an exercise in vanity, I guess, and boredom. Well, was, but it's, it's, it's you know, I was thinking about it this morning with myself because I've, I've got enough material for a new record. And it's, you know, trying to put out your own records and then try to send them out to radio stations. And, you know, as you well know, by the time you get the record done, you spend, now you, you have a, you can record in your own studio, so you save money there. But in my case, you go and you get whatever creation or wherever you record mm-hmm. at 75 bucks an hour, then you pay the musicians, and then you've got yep. to pay somebody to do the artwork and then press the damn thing. And by the time you get the actual disc back in the mail, you're completely fried and completely out of energy and money to do anything else with the record, <laughs> except watch yeah. them stack up in your closet, right? I'm telling you, my favorite day, this is why I like my job writing and producing for other people. The day I finish a record and the final mix is approved and everything, I'm like, good luck out there, kids. <laughs> See ya. See you next year. Now, you know I, mean? I don't mean that in a cynical way. I'm just saying, I just, Paul, I don't have it in me anymore. Yeah. I don't have it in me anymore to go do that stuff. And I respect the people that do it well. I just finished, uh, or I'm just about to finish mixing the new Chris Coza record. And he makes it work. Yeah, but he's on his phone constantly, you know, doing all the stuff you have to do. And I just, um, I was never good at it. I remember I was working with this artist, and I was booked at the Star Tribune for not giving this artist more attention. Mm-hmm. It was many years ago, and I sent this email, a really bitchy email, to Chris Raymond Schneider, and he replied to me, and he said, "You really need to get a publicist because you suck at it. You're the worst <laughs> publicist ever." And at first, I was like, "Well." How dare he? But then I started laughing because I realized, oh my God, he's so right. Yeah. I, I am the worst at it and I hate doing it. And so I never did it again after that. And every time I run into him now, I'm like, Chris, you saved my life. You were so right. <laughs> he was. Well, you know, it's funny. I, uh, uh, John Bream, you know, I put up my first record in 84. And, and John Bream and the Star Tribune has always been pretty good to me. But occasionally, um, uh, occasionally, you know, he'll take me down for whatever reason, and I guess it's his way of justifying to give me press when he likes my whatever, my shows or my records. And so I've always uh, referred to him, and I signed that book I was telling you about uh, to John Bream. Uh, I I refer to him as two kudos and a bitch slap. <laughs> exactly. You never know what you're going to get. Uh, he's usually been pretty cool. Uh, pretty cool to me so has chris actually they've both been, been pretty good this last last time i talked to bream was um but again this is my favorite part of my life and my job now i i don't have to i don't have anything invested right i don't have to kiss anyone's butt i mean if, if i produce a record and they like give it a bad review or whatever i don't care it's not my record i mean i produced it but it's not as personal as like if you make your own record and then they say you suck. I mean, that hurts. Right. But right. Yeah, I just did that that last Joanne Parker record. I did, and he just loved it. He called me, and he was. We were on the phone for an hour. Yeah. And during the whole hour, I was kind of sitting there in my mind, going, "Where were you when I needed to?" <laughs> and then finally, I was like, "John, 
I gotta go. Dinner's ready. <laughs> well, you know, we we've all anybody that's been uh, been reviewed uh, has taken the slings and arrows of the good fortune or bad fortune that uh, the writer will have towards you or me or our projects. But I remember back when City Page was called Sweet Potato, and oh, yeah, uh, I that. there was a fellow named Mark Gaddis who put now. Back in the 70s, when you put an album, that was a big deal. Because, yes. first of all, who the hell pre- presses LPs? We didn't even know where to do that. And he put out his first or second record. Then a couple year, about a year or two later, he decided to re-release it. He sold out the initial pressing, did the same record with different artwork. And the woman uh, that reviewed the record, the same record the second time, said, uh, yeah, it's a very enjoyable record. Uh, but a great improvement over his last project. (laughs) (laughs) Which tells you all you need to know about rock and roll critics. Kevin Bo, tell us a little bit before we let you go about uh, the the song we're going to hear, California Sober, and who played on it. Okay, so yeah, there is no Kima Prophets anymore. It's just me and whoever I can con into playing on the stuff or whatever. So this song happens to be Noah Levy on drums, and then the reason the chorus sounds so cool is... um, my neighbor, uh, Tim O'Regan from the Jayhawks, and most people know him as the uh, drummer from the Jayhawks. Oh, yeah. Is, but he is an amazing singer. I mean, I use him to sing on so many records I produce because he's just supremely gifted. He's like Beach Boys in a Box. Hmm. He has that just beautiful, shiny, sunshine, uh, Beach Boys harmony thing just nailed. And so he did the vocal harmonies, and then I did the guitars and the vocal and wrote it and did everything else. I play bass on my own stuff, too, now, whether I should or not. I usually do. Um, <laughs> and, uh, well, it's like, I have a bass. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> so, um, but the song uh, came out really cool, and then I did a video, which I've never really done on, like, a video before. Um, but, you know, Jeremy Ildesacker? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a great guitar player, and he's a... And he's a I mean, he plays in the suburbs and all, all these other things. He's just a master. I've been friends with him, and I, <laughs> I decided to do a video for no reason, and I contacted a bunch of people, and I found out who was doing videos in town, and I got turned down by all of them. And I started looking at the mirror and going, Come on, it's not that bad. What is, <laughs> what's happening here? Um, and I guess they were busy, or I, they didn't think I was cool enough or whatever, which I don't blame them. But I, ca- I talked to Jeremy, and uh, he was like, yeah. And uh, he shot this video, and I just, I love it. And I loved the experience. It was fantastic. If, if people, I'm going to do another one, I would call him in a minute, and everyone else would call him, too. If, uh, if people want to buy the record, are you going to have him at the fetus? No, I'm not going to press. It's just going to be, uh, it's just going to be online. If oh, cool. Is that much of a, a, a stick in the mud that they don't, uh, want, that they have to have a CD, they could contact me off my website, and I suppose I'll burn them one. Right. Um, you know what I mean? Because why not? Who cares? But um, yeah, it's just going to be, it's just going to be online. So the single comes out Monday. All right. And California Silver, and then the rest of the album will be about a month after that. But I think I sent you, because you are my good friend Paul Metza, yeah. um, another song that nobody's heard yet called um, "I Hate Falling in Love." Okay. And I, I just, for some reason, knowing you as well as I do, and for as long as I do. That's the one I picked. That song is kind of me pretending to be here, Harry Nilsson. Beautiful. Well, we will listen to that next. Kevin Bow, and that's B-O-W-E, uh, an old friend of mine, and uh, has that same 
hardened, gristle look at the music business, yet here we are still surviving, right, here Kevin? We are. Too well, dumb to quit. Well, you have a, 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 a give my uh, best to your lovely wa- uh, wife, Ruth, and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing you in person here soon. Good luck with the project, and thanks for spending time on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. My guest on the other line, all the way from the Twin Cities, my old buddy, Mr. Rob Hillstrom. He has a great show tonight. It's the 18th annual tribute to the last waltz at the Fitzgerald Theater. Years and years it's been at the Caboose. And we'll have Mr. Hillstrom tell us all about tribute to the last waltz. First of all, good evening, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks, thanks, Paul. Oh, we're happy to have you. Now, I was uh, honored to play Eric Clapton a couple of times at the Caboose, the tribute to the last waltz. But tell us, how did the uh, whole idea come to you when you put on your first show 18 years ago? <laughs> well, about 18 and a half years ago, 
I was uh, doing some uh, session work out at the old Flight Time Studios out there in Edina, and I was outside taking a smoke break and talking to a friend, and I'm like, you know, I'd love to do a tribute show that incorporates people from every scene in this town, because it seems like there's all these different scenes, and, you know, people know each other in their different scenes, but they don't always work across those scenes. So right. my idea was to get everybody together and and uh, got lucky, and it worked. <laughs> so let's talk about, before you tell us who's on tonight's show, who are, uh, besides uh, myself, who else have you had uh, play as the different performers recreating the 1976 uh, performance of the band at Winterland in San Francisco, filmed by Martin Scorsese, called The Last Waltz. Over the years, who have you had uh, perform? Oh, we've had everybody from Eric Koskinen um, playing Bob Dylan um, to Adam Levy, who's coming back this year. Um, oh, boy. And, of course, Paul Metza playing Clapton a couple times. That's for sure. And, um, further on, up, know, the further years, on up the road. Yep, and we've had, like, Haley Bonar and um, several several local um, nationally known artists as well. So Now, this year you've got uh, uh, a stellar lineup. You also have a ringer from out of town, the drummer from Mo, one of the uh, big jam bands in the country. Tell us about that hookup. Yes, we do. So um, uh, Mark uh, Grunhopper, who is... Um, as we know as Mark Joseph and his performing name um, is involved in the show this year. And he performs in a band with uh, uh, Vinny Amico, um, as well as a couple other guys um, from Mo and other various groups. I think sometimes they have um, Jason Hahn in there. And so it's kind of this super group. And so they are actually going to be the Dire Wolves, they're called, and they're going to be opening up the Friday, January 27th show. And, um, yeah, we're excited to have them. And it also includes their, their singer is, is coming, too, as well. Um, and so the guitar player singer, and he's going to be doing various guest spots as well as Neil Young one night. Uh, so it's going to be at the Fitzgerald Theater, and I know... Uh, Mark Joseph recently performed there with the the Big Woo. Yes, he did. Their thirtieth anniversary. I, I filmed that. <laughs> you, well, you are uh, you know you know my last uh, recording project I did in Minneapolis, which was my uh, last recording project in Minneapolis. You and I went over to your studio in St. Paul right before the lockdown because I mean literally things were going to get locked down and and I had this song called You Can't Be Brave If You're Not Scared and we knocked that out in the early evening uh, which you can find on YouTube by the way uh, but you wear a lot of hats um, not only uh, are you a great keyboard player and played with a, a bunch of bands over the years but you're currently occasionally playing uh, with the samples that uh, jam band out of Colorado correct? Absolutely. So I am uh, their sub keyboardist, and they've been they've been flying me out of t town to do weekend gigs. Um, and if you don't know about the samples, look them up. They're they got pretty well known in the '90s. I know they played here a lot at the Zoo Amphitheater in First Avenue. In fact, they still have a star up on First Avenue. Good for them. Now I see too. I was looking at the poster for tonight's show. Uh, your son Connor is playing. Yes, he is, and we've had him do the Dr. John before, 
um, and he does the piano part, and Joe Dunn does the singing because as great a piano player as Connor, he's he's not a vocalist yet. Kind of, you know. So um, we help him out there, and we have Joe Dunn from Frog Lake teaming up with them. Cool. And uh, who? I'm just trying to think now. I see Wayne McFarland's on the bill. What what uh, what's Wayne going to be doing? Yes, Wayne is going to be doing Muddy Waters. Well, that's perfect. Yeah, it's great to have him, of course, the, from the, the famous Minnesota ipso facto. Oh, absolutely. The, uh, one of the original family bands, along with the, the Steele family, in terms of great uh, Minneapolis-based. Absolutely. Music. We have a Alex Steele is on this as well. No. It was a, yeah. Is he the son of one of the uh, elders? I, I believe son or nephew. Okay. And, uh, yeah, he, he used to play in um, a band called Roster McCabe, which was very popular in town. Now, Rob Hillstrom, who else? I mean, you and I have known each other for, for years, <laughs> but who else have you played with? Well, I go back. I mean, back when I think I first met you, I was playing with a band called the Goonie Birds. Which That's was right. A great bad jam band. Um, we used to do every Tuesdays at the old 400 bar. That shows my age a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and various people along the ways I've filled in um, from everybody from, you know, Lamont Cranston. Um, I've done a lot of work with G.B. Layton. Um, so I, I kind of bounce around this town a little bit as well as getting out of town. I remember when I was uh, making one of my many comebacks over the years, and I was also I was doing Tuesday nights at Bunkers, and and uh, I had him put in the paper because GB Layton was you know he was like Elvis at that time, and uh, <laughs> packing the place every time he played. I had him put a tagline for I think I was playing his Paul Metz and the Naughty Pines, and that was N A U G H T Y, and uh, you know back then I'd been kind of. I lived in New York and, and came back, and I wasn't really on the scene. So there was like a generation of people that didn't know who I was. So I just had him tag the uh, uh, tag the ad. I said, uh, Paul Metza, like G.B. Layton, only older. <laughs> I don't know oh, if it really helped bring out, bring out folks or not. So... Uh, <laughs> So, so now, might have disappointed a couple people, but, uh, you know. <laughs> I always manage to disappoint, disappoint someone. You no, know, yeah, G.B. Brian, he's been on the show, too. He's done Dylan before on our show. And, who's uh, who's doing Dylan this year? So we got Adam Levy doing it. Oh, year. Adam Levy, well, that's perfect. I know for yeah. years you had uh, Dan Israel. Yes. You've got to get Martin Devaney on there to do Dylan one of these years because... You know, yeah, he would be another... I mean, there's so many people in town. <laughs> How many musicians do you think over the years that have been through the uh, Last Walls uh, team? Oh, boy, I, I need to make up a list because, you know, I've had different band members over the years, um, you know, it's it, and different guests. It, it, it has to be... You know, at, at, at least 50, 60 people by now, if not more. Wow. And uh, uh, so what is now, is it going to, it's it's really two nights this year, isn't it? Is it yes, it's January 27th and 28th. Okay, January 27th and 28th. So uh, yeah, I was assuming it was tonight, but it's actually next week. So this is, this is perfect. What, um, yeah. So, and you also, let's put a little plug in, 
uh, you know, you and I are Facebook buddies, and you're also selling pianos. Let's talk a little bit about that piano store because if Absolutely. I, if That's I was, where a, I am yeah, right now, <laughs> and they're kind enough to let me um, take off for a second here to do this interview. But uh, I've started taking over as the manager here at Jim Lobs Pianos uh, in Roseville, Minnesota, and we sell pianos all over the country. Well, that's actually a perfect job for you because you're number one. You've got such great personality. You're a great piano player, and uh, uh-huh. I hope they let you get in a little later, like they don't open at eight a.m. or anything. <laughs> no, no, I get to start at noon, so it's a perfect musician's gig. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd, any of us would <laughs> scare scare the hell out of people if we showed up at eight o'clock behind any counter anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that would not be productive. <laughs> so, and uh, you hooked up with. Uh, uh, Mark Joseph on this, and uh, have you wor- yes, worked with Mark uh, Mark before on any any events? Yeah, so we also do the momentary lapse of Floyd Pink Floyd tribute. Oh yeah, and, let's talk uh, about that for a bit. That's an interesting we're, show. Yeah, we're actually coming back to the same venue, um, the Fitzgerald Theater, again this year, doing March third, fourth, and fifth, doing the Wall with the Twin Cities Ballet. Wow. Yeah, and we did it the first time last year, and it, I tell you, Paul, it was one of the most amazing experiences next to the, doing the last waltz. Um, yet after that first show, because, uh, you know, getting all that music in sync with the dancers, and when that stage curtain closed after the first show, the dancers and the band and everybody jumped up and down screaming in celebration. That's beautiful. Now tell me, you, you're you a Pink Floyd fan. I've... Uh... I've listened to him because you can't, I mean, you can't turn on the radio and not hear uh, 50 years of Pink Floyd on the radio. But tell us that uh, Dark Side of the Moon, have you ever watched it now along with The Wizard of Oz? Because tell us the the myth about that and if it's true Absolutely. or not. Absolutely. We, we have done it. There are, of course, you get some happy accidents, but, um, you know, the, the Alan Parsons who makes it says he has no knowledge of that happening so he you know i would think he would know i just think it happens to be a real happy accident um but we have also found that it syncs up really well with 2001 a space odyssey hmm. and so they're both the wizard of oz and 2001 a space odyssey are both about the same time as the playing time on dark side of the moon pretty much if you t- to get to the space sequence at the end then we play echoes which is like 20 minutes and that that fills up that space sequence perfectly. You know, you musicians, you're all completely insane. You know that, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it takes one to know one. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, Rob Hilstrom, an old buddy of mine, and a neighbor there for a few years when you were when you moved into Northeast. I want to wish you luck on the show uh, coming up next uh, Friday and Saturday at the Fitzgerald Theater. Tribute to the Last Walls with uh, some incredible Twin Cities musicians and some ringers from out of town. Best of luck with uh, that, Rob. And uh, the next time I get down to the uh, Twin Cities, I'm going to uh, call you up and uh, let's go have a lunch and a beer or two. Please do, and everybody come down because this is the sing-along show of the year. I like that, the sing-along show of the year. And you know what? I had no lesson of authority than the great Pete Seeger uh, tell me, and now this, you know, I want to say Paul McCartney told me once to don't keep dropping names like 
be such a name dropper, but Pete told me if you get more than 10 people in a room together and you're performing, have them all sing along in at least one song. So go out to the Tribute to the Last Waltz, the great sing-along show of the year at the Fitzgerald Theater, 27th and 28th in beautiful downtown St. Paul. Rob, have a great night, and thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Paul. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show is produced by Paul Metzler, engineered by John Sarista. We'd like to thank our guests, Kevin Bowe and Rob Hillstrom. I'd like to remind you my book, Alphabet Jazz, Poetry, Prose, Stories, and Songs, is out. You can buy that and the companion CD at the Electric Fetus or order it on Amazon. I will also be performing at the Women's Club March 25th for SMA, Summa Cleaning Associates, produced series of shows called the Music and Storytellers Series. Follow me at paulmetza.com. Hope everybody's enjoying the new year. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.